So, hello and welcome to Something Who. In these extraordinary times, here's something a bit different that I hope you'll enjoy. I'm speaking with Chris Chapman, who's a producer and director of television programmes, as well as the author of a number of Big Finish audios. But the main thing I want to discuss with him today is his work as producer and director of many of the new extra features on the Doctor Who, the collection Blu-ray sets. Chris, hello and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Hello Richard, that's no problem at all. Looking forward to it. Great. Perhaps I could start briefly by asking how you came to be a TV producer and director and and maybe then we'll discuss how that led to you working on the Doctor Who range. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, like a lot of people in the business, I think I just began as a nerd. I think I just began as a massive (laughs) geek uh, and continued in that vein, but I was just a massive geek as a teenager as a student for for films for television and I just absorbed it and I loved genre telly and genre films and I loved Doctor Who and and always kind of grew up loving that and and I thought actually I was going to go off and be a a film journalist I thought I was going to go and write for Empire or Uh something and and then just just randomly as a student studying film fell into television production uh, while I was still a student you know before my dissertation was handed in I managed I got a junior job at ITV uh-huh. Uh, as a researcher and it, and it was on archive tv it was on one of those kind of hundred greatest shows that channel right. four used to do so it was a yeah. hundred greatest family films and for me that was as a i was would have been like 21 or so and it was just nerd heaven because <laughs> suddenly i was interviewing i was involved in interviewing like ray harryhausen and, right. and, and 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 all these kind of idols of 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 the movies i was into and i remember ray bringing along uh one of the skeletons from Jason oh, right. and the Argonauts, and and he had it inside a little coffin that he produced yeah. it, and it had like you, you could move its arms and legs and stuff. And I just mm-hmm. thought this is great. So I yeah. guess that nerdiness translated in into television, and then I just worked my way up. Really, I got opportunities to start directing things in about two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. and then in two thousand and eight, I realised, oh, I'm buying these Doctor Who DVDs, and they have extras on them. <laughs> Uh, which are documentaries like the things I'm starting to make. So maybe I should be pitching for these things. That would be good. And, and and it was Dan Hall in charge of the range at the time. Yeah. So yeah. I, I pitched to Dan and showed him some of the stuff we'd done that I'd been working on. And he really liked it. And he gave me a chance. And then we kind of went from there, really. And the Doctor Who stuff has grown alongside my kind of telly work, mm-hmm. which is mostly kind of presenter and, and observation films for The Beeb and a bit of ITV and, and Sky and Channel 4. And... And that's gone alongside the Doctor Who's. And then we ended up doing 40, I think 40 Doctor Who documentaries for wow. DVD. And then it's been about 20-odd for Blu-ray so far. Like 15 to 20, I think, for Blu-ray. Hmm. Uh, so it's been it's been great. And it's still, it's still founded on being a massive nerd and kind of being massively into these things and, and being passionate, I guess, about Doctor Who. Having a big heart for the series and for mm. the way it was made and continues to be made. Sure. And and what was your first exposure to Doctor Who? Was it what age? Oh, as a viewer. Yeah. Yeah, as a viewer, I I'm kind of from the very very tail end of the original run. So uh-huh. I my first memory is of little bits of the mysterious planet of, mm-hmm. of Trial of a Time Lord 1 to 4. So that's like 86, isn't it? So I would have been about 5 yeah. years old when that was on. Uh, and I remember being really scared by that lady that they find in uh, at the end of Vervoid's episode two when she's kind of half human, half Vervoid. Did that really freak me out? And then yeah. I, 
I vividly, my parents seem to have avoided showing me any of season 24. We seem to just skip that, which might have been serendipitous, I'm not sure. Uh, I I remember a bit of Dragonfire, a little bit of the very end of season 24, and then huge memories of 25 and and the McCoy era from then on. And particularly, I remember watching Remembrance of the Daleks and just thinking in 1988, this is the best thing ever. And, And everybody talks about it not being popular being beaten by Cory in those days but we went out of school and we played Remembrance of the Daleks you know we we kind of ran behind the mobiles and somebody was Davros mm. and somebody was the possessed girl and somebody be ace like beating up Daleks with an imaginary baseball bat so I was I was very much of that of that era and then was just gutted when it got cancelled got very excited in 96 when it might come back and then was gutted all over again for another kind mm. of 10 years or so after that so that was my kind of fan my kind of early years as a fan was very much started in Colin but very much Sylvester was when I became a fan yes yeah I mean I I, I fully remember uh, remembrance that that was in my case when I was at university but it was one of those things where mm. in in those days as as a sort of well I wasn't quite teenager I was probably about 20 but but you know as, as that kind of age you were embarrassed to be a Doctor Who fan and 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 actually remembrance was a sort of thing that made you less embarrassed I mean you know you you felt it was it was almost okay to come out of the closet at that point because it was um yeah it, 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 it sort of felt um yeah it felt like something you could be proud of yeah well I think the production values are such a step up mm. at, at that moment in the show's history and also that kind of two fingers up of the Dalek going up the stairs, yeah. you know, feels like the show is has really regained its confidence mm. a lot, and I, I think it's a great time for the show. And I, I never understood when I was, you know, starting to buy the magazine, uh, Doctor Who magazine, starting to re- read forums a bit later on that people would be down on McCoy sometimes because for me he was he was the Doctor, mm. you know, he was a, a huge part of of me, me me becoming interested in the show. Yeah, yeah. So moving on, I guess to some of these features that have that have turned up on the Blu-ray. So, so I suppose yeah. you know my perspective is I was fortunate enough to to buy the season twelve one when it came out. I didn't have a Blu-ray player, so I sort of undenied. But I thought, no, this 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 looks worth having a crack at. So, mm. so I, so I, I bought into the range. I guess Excellent. one of the ones I wanted to, t- to to talk to you about it wasn't on that first Blu-ray, but it was the the weekend with Waterhouse because I think that's I think yeah. that's interesting because you know Matthew Waterhouse is possibly the most maligned actor in all of um, classic <laughs> Doctor Who, oh. uh, you know, but of course yeah. you know also one of us you know uh, 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 you know massively enthusiastic about Doctor Who perhaps that's why he was so hated at the time because you know everyone's thinking well why why isn't it me on the screen but I thought that was, that, that's an it's an interesting approach so I, so I suppose a, a a couple of things spring to mind one I suppose is what's the what's the creative process between Toby in the front of uh, uh, and you behind the camera and then also how did you go about thinking of, uh, about what to do with Matthew to to sort of tell his story yeah well it was quite interesting towards the end of the DVD range I started working a lot with Toby Haydock yeah and I feel like we did three docs towards the end of the DVD range which were there was one called looking for Peter about Peter yeah. R. Newman and then one uh, with John Levine, Living with Levine, where we kind of took Louis through weird weekend format yeah. and said, you know, we're going to send Toby to spend some time with John. And then we did uh, Haydock versus Havoc as well, all about all about the stunt team uh-huh. from the Pertwee years. And I think we all felt, everybody working on those thought, oh, we've really hit a level of confidence and production values 
which is great. And, and then the DVD range ended because we'd run out of <laughs> stories no, to release. So we're like, oh, well, I guess that's it then. We won't do any more of these. And then it was quite a surprise when we t- started talking about Blu-ray, about Blu-ray releases, and I, you know, a very exciting surprise. And so one of the first things I knew I wanted to do was to continue making things with Toby. I think Toby's terrific uh, as a as a presenter because you know, on a basic level, he's got he's got the knowledge that he can deal with any Doctor Who situation and I don't need to feed him very much at all, you know, because he knows he knows this stuff back to front. Yeah. But I think what Toby underestimates himself is Toby is amazing with people. Yeah. And and will put people at their ease and get the best out of them and be generous and he's a great listener. And so that makes him a great telepresenter. So I was very, very keen to get Toby back on board. And the first thing we did together was on the season eighteen box set, which was uh, I pitched, I said let's continue that kind of weird weekend format and see if Matthew Waterhouse would do one and I always said Let, let's do one called Weekend with Waterhouse and that it'd be really fun you know I think I really like Matthew I, I think that Adric as a character is quite Marmite and is a character mm. who's been controversial over the years some people gen, you know really really love Adric and 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 some people hate Adric and and I and I think a lot of it is uh, on both sides. It's because we can see ourselves in him as a character because yes. he is a nerd on screen, uh, and we're probably reflected more in him than we are in Romana or in <laughs> Liz Shaw or something like that. You know, yeah. and and so we kind of see parts of ourselves that we like and parts that we don't like. And and I think Matthew has always been quite an enigmatic kind of figure. His autobiography is quite interesting yeah. and, and reveals some, some really hard things he's been through in his life. But it's also all written in the third person, hmm. which I always thought was quite an interesting choice. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be lovely to get to know Matthew? And, and we so we approached Matthew. And initially, I, I went to see him. I went down to Hastings and sat with him in his in his front room, surrounded by all of his DVDs and books, mm-hmm. uh, and that, which I was obviously very interested in, going, oh, this is great. And, uh, and Matthew was quite reticent. To, to do the film I think he could kind of he thought maybe you know is this going to be a send up or is this uh, are these nice people or whatever yeah. and you know I very much wanted to reassure him that, that the film was would be driven by him you know that the film would be hopefully an encapsulation of his personality and his uh, perspective on the world and, and we weren't there to have an agenda mm-hmm. about any of that we just wanted to catch him at his best and see what, what, what it was like to get to know him as a friend and I I think he he took a big uh, a big deep breath and decided to do it, which was fantastic. And then you know, uh, putting together the film, we have to have a plan going into that kind of weekend because yeah. we need to be able to sure. access the locations. We can't just it's very hard just to pitch up and say, <laughs> oh, can we film here yeah. without being told no quite a lot. So we had a plan which we talked through with Matthew and you know trying to get to the heart of. I thought Hastings would be a wonderful, interesting location yeah. that I wasn't that familiar with. And his life is very much in Hastings. You know, he uses that town. He uses all the, all mm. his favourite bits of that town, and he's very involved in that community. Uh, so we just grew it out of the things that he loved. So it was grown out of his his library at home, out of his love of jazz, out of his love of of, of the seaside there, and and uh, and his his husband Tim, and so mm. on. You know, so that was all that was all very natural, and it didn't take a lot of brainstorming. To think mm. that's the way to do it, and then so that's me really working to give the film a framework of. I hope we will go around and and visit these places and maybe address these themes and topics. But then then it's very much open to Toby to kind of improvise and and for Matthew 
just just to see what happens between the two of them. And to be honest, the more I can shut up once we've got a like a shot set, uh, the more I can shut up and let them just be and not be directed. Hopefully, the more interesting it'll, it'll be, the more natural it'll be. So that was mm. a really nice weekend, and we had lovely lovely weather. Uh, and yes. Matthew was very I thought I thought comes across great in that film, and I think it changed. I hope it changed a lot of perspectives on him when people watched it. That he came across quite, yeah. quite unpretentiously and quite charmingly as a, a passionate person, you know, and 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 a, a fan, you know, a fan of the of genre, not just of Doctor Who, but of the genre science fiction and fantasy and all that stuff, and and the original Batman series. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, I think people were most people yeah. seemed most interested to kind of be voyeuristic about his. DVD collection, and I'm I'm all for that. I think you can tell a lot of, about people <laughs> through their library at home. So uh, he certainly has a, a pretty good library, yeah. and 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 he was he sent me a message afterwards to say that him and Tim had watched the film and they loved it. You know, you know. So that was that was really nice to think yeah. he took a, a chance on us, and he was happy. I think to have done that. Yeah, yeah. So so I think it, I think it is a really warm film. I, I agree with you. I think Matthew comes across really well, and I think also. There doesn't seem to be any any side or front to him. I mean, it, it it feels like you've you've managed to put him at ease, and he is just being himself. And I, and I think that's you know that that's also quite interesting and 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 attractive to watch. So so yeah, I, I think you know job done with that definitely. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. And I think a lot of that's Toby. A lot of that is that sense, you know, that he he can just quite magically, I think, in a very sincere way. I don't think he does this as a trick or anything, but he he can just put people at ease like mm. that, and then it means you can build a film very nicely you can build it around that relationship definitely and and we'd love to do more of those they're kind of the trickier ones to pitch because <laughs> they're not for everybody <laughs> you know and and i completely respect that that for some people private life is private and mm. and i guess I, I i always kind of say say we'll look at the films that we've made like that uh these aren't i don't think they are invasive films i think they're films mm. that can really celebrate and kind of say something different to often the things that people have been asked to talk about at conventions over and over again, that that that, that we can see, we can talk about something else, you know, because there's not actually that much talk about Doctor Who in in the Waterhouse mm. film, you know. So we'd love to do. I've got a few people that I have in mind that I'd love to offer that to for future box sets, mm. and fingers crossed we'll get to do that. Yeah, good. So I guess a a, a different box set, but uh, I suppose building also on on those documentaries you mentioned earlier. So so you you did looking for Lenny. Yes. Talking about Lenny Main, and I guess that's a, that was a follow up to your one on Peter Newman, yeah. the um, dispenser rights guy. Yeah. So again, I mean that's so that's interesting because in, on the one hand, it feels like a lot of people have talked about Lenny Main over the years, and then when when you watch the film, you think, oh yeah, actually kind of when they did talk about him they didn't say very much about him they just sort of said how how great it was to work with him yeah so so again that was an interesting one that you, you managed to draw out a lot of character points about about what he was like and what his life consisted of thank you yeah no that it was that's another strand that we do the looking for strand is is there to really say yeah you know here's a here's a doctor who figure who we probably don't know that much about you know wouldn't it be lovely to to know more and to really get to know them, mm. and I think with with Lenny Main, we'd always heard these kind of anecdotes about he's the chap who said "Holy flaming cow" or something like that, and he's a brash Australian, and everybody seems to have liked him. And the other big thing we knew was that he died in a boating accident. Yeah, and his life had been very unfortunately cut short, and his career had been cut short, and and we knew that it had a big impact. And uh-huh. and I guess with with looking for Lenny, it was trying to reclaim Lenny in a way. It was trying to start from 
this tragedy that we had to address and we had to talk about. And is there's, I, I don't think there's any hiding it. You know, to, Toby and I were interested in in that tragedy. You know, we thought this is this is interesting. What's happened to this man, and we want to understand that better. And we're, we're we're drawn to maybe that that tragic aspect. But actually, we wanted it to be a film that then said, okay, but what happened before that? And let, let's celebrate the good in this man and let's move away from the morbid and actually make something that really kind of cherishes his, his life and his memory. And so that's what we did. And, and it was a very sensitive, tricky film to make because it was really important to me that the family, that, that, that Lenny's twin girls, who are grown up now, have their own families, you know, that they were on board with the film, that they were supportive of the film and that we had their blessing and, and more importantly, that we had them involved. Mm. And I think initially they were very uh, concerned because it's still a very raw subject. You know, so many years on, losing a father like that is, is a terrible thing to live through. And, and we had to really, you know, I had to go and really persuade them that we were, that our intentions were good, you know, that we wanted to make something yeah. that was positive. And and I think from that point we knew it couldn't be a film that mm-hmm. say retraced the minute by minute of the night that Lenny died. It could it could go it could touch on all that, but it really had to be careful how much detail. We didn't want to point any fingers or or accuse anybody because it was a very contentious death. You know when he when he did die, and we thought let's draw back a little bit from that mm. and and really speak to the people who loved him. You know and, and that meant you know kind of getting people like Bernard Cribbins involved mm-hmm. and. Andrew Morgan, the Doctor Who director, yes. who is a really good good friend of Lenny's, and and then and then and then getting a chance to to have uh, to have Sadie Maine, his daughter, on camera with Toby, and that beautiful suitcase that they open up of photos and documents from yes. Lenny's youth. Uh, There's actually the suitcase he came over from Australia <laughs> with. That as soon as Sadie said, "Oh, we've got the suitcase," I'm thinking, "This is amazing. We we can wow. yeah. you know this is a lovely a lovely thing to be able to feature in the film." And, and and I think and, and one of the most terrifying things I've done on the range was I, I kind of had said to myself, look, if Lenny's daughters hate this, then we have to listen and do something about it, and and try and change the things that they hate, and you know, listen because this is not something where you can wave a contract and say, well, you said we could do this, you know, this is something where you need to be responsible and ethical, and and so I took the film to to see Sadie. And uh, I, I didn't want to give her the pressure of me watching it with her over her shoulder, yeah. so I went and sat in the garden. I sat outside in the garden for forty minutes while she watched <laughs> it, and then she and then she asked me back in. And and fortunately, she loved it, and the family loved it, and were very very proud. And and again, but at that point, you're thinking, "Blimey, I might just <laughs> we finished the edit, but yeah. we might just have to start again." You know, uh, oh, and it, and it's you know you have that responsibility to them. Yeah. To, for them to be happy with what's going out into the world. So fortunately, it was a good experience. And I think it was cathartic for the family in in some ways, you know, that, that something lovely and positive was put out there into the world about Lenny. So it, it was good. And again, you know, we'd love to keep keep that strand going and, and keep, keep talking about those people who mm. haven't been talked enough about. It's amazing, isn't it, that uh, you know when you think about you know the number of issues of Doctor Who magazine and all the books and <laughs> podcasts and so you know there's there's still people that we actually don't know all that much about. Yeah, yeah. I I think often it's using Doctor Who as a trampoline and saying, you know, the reason that you're you've pressed play on this to watch this is because of Doctor Who, but we mm. trust you enough to know that you are curious about the world and mm-hmm. people and and television enough to 
to follow this story away from, from Doctor Who. I think sometimes yes. fandom or the Doctor Who community can think, well, Doctor Who fans only want to know about Doctor Who, and I, and I don't think that's always true. I think, I think with those films, people have been prepared to go to mm. other places and, and, and widen that appreciation because they care about the people involved. I think perhaps fandom has grown up. I mean, there, there might have been a time when all we wanted to know about was Doctor Who, but but I think you know we've 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 learned that that people have bigger lives than that, and there's more to the story. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. it it connects to not wanting to hear the same stories over and over. You know, yes. to think let's, you know, particularly with the Blu-rays where everything has come out on DVD already. Most of the stories on DVD have had their own making ofs or yeah. series retrospectives and so on. So you're looking at you, the worst thing we can do is repeat ourselves. So yeah. you're every time thinking, <laughs> what can we do here? That's untouched. What yeah. can we do here that won't, you know, make you think, Oh, I've already bought this, you know, that, that, mm. that you can do something new. Yeah. So talking of which, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to discuss yes. with you the, um, the feature on the doctor who cookbook. Because it was, oh, yeah. uh, I watched this with my daughter. My uh-huh. daughter's uh, early teenage. She's watched a bit of, of um, classic Doctor Who with me over the years. Yeah. And so she knew, I guess, most of the people that were in it. And she loved it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it too. And I, and, I, and I thought it's interesting because you, again, it's another one of those where you're teetering on the brink between, uh, so you could do, you could do an out and out satire of, you know, of, of the whole idea that Gary Downey, and the cookbook yeah. but but you but you you pull back from that and actually again it's another i mean i i guess this is probably going to be a common theme in 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 your films it's it, it's it's much more affectionate it's about saying okay well we we've done this you know this is out it is out there but and actually people really again i think warmed to uh, to the idea that they could actually make their their dishes and 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 you know talk about what they were going through <laughs> at, at the time that uh, that, that uh, gary yeah. pulled those recipes together yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a really fun one to make, and 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 the cookbook itself, Gary Downey's cookbook, is so mad that you kind of have to embrace. You can't make a serious documentary about that. You have to kind of embrace the silliness, and so that all comes at the start of the film. You know, you know, you know, getting India Fisher from Master Chef to come and do yes. the voiceover. Oh, and, oh, what a fantastic and kind of move! The mic yeah. Out of. yeah, well, and she. And she was really, I think, I think because she, she really feels a connection to Colin through the big finish work they've done together. Yes. She really wanted to do it, and you know, so it kind of starts as a spoof, and then, you, you, but you can't. I think if you keep spoofing, it kind of becomes unfunny quite mm. quickly. And we thought, well, actually, you know, this is a really nice setup for an interview. You know, mm. if you're cooking with somebody, then you're and you're taking the mick out of each other, and you're taking the mick out of the things that you're cooking. But also, it's a good environment to to then throw in a few unusual questions and a, and kind of put people on their back foot a bit. So I, I think in all those interviews, Toby does really well. Mm. Of you, you're learning new things about those people, about the sides of their lives that again aren't to do with Doctor Who, you know. But we're engaged because because we love these people and we and we want to understand them better. Yeah. Um, so it was really fun to film. It reminded me how tricky cookery shows actually are to make. <laughs> how 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 kind of you watch them on telly and you think, oh, this is easy, and actually doing it and it sounds really simple, but making sure you have both the kind of the master shots of of the of the people chatting and yeah. also the right details of the preparation that they're involved in, mm. and that never the twain show me, you know, never show show you see one camera and the other camera shot and all that. It, it's yeah. It's trickier than you'd, than you'd think, actually. But it was really fun. 
and and it's nice that that one's been nominated for an RTS award up against kind of broadcast shows, you know, up against shows that have a much bigger budget and are made on, mm. you know, for broadcast on telly. And we're just a, a little non-broadcast DV, like Blu-ray extra, but it's quite nice to think of, mm. of hopefully a bit of recognition coming yeah. that way. We shall see, but it was definitely one of the most, it was w- one of the maddest ones. And yeah. sometimes I think, you know, we've, we've got enough ammunition that we could do a volume two. And I always thought it'd be quite fun to get kind of Sean Pertwee to do the volume two, so as the voice of <laughs> right, yes. like Master Chef, the professionals, or, yeah. or something. Uh, but you just think, does that outstay the welcome? Does that outstay the joke? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't quite decided it yet. But, um, but there are certainly people in the book. You know that that that's a big book. There's a yes. lot of recipes in that book that are untouched at the moment. So who knows? I think what's nice also is that in some cases you get Colin and Nicola, you get Janet and Sarah, um, and and that kind of interaction. Of the of the two people cooking kind of tells you something about their relationship that perhaps I mean perhaps you, you kind of knew it anyway but 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 you get to see it um, brought more to the surface by the task that they're doing. Yeah, well, I I think I've said that said this before, but I think one of the key differences between the Blu-ray range and the DVD range is is interaction. I think that our habit on the DVDs was to isolate people and to mm. do your classic kind of talking head solo interview. Uh, because you know it's simpler, it's more controllable, it's easier to edit afterwards. All these things, mm. uh, but actually, I think one of the defining things that I've been keen on, and certainly that Russell Minton, uh, who's in, uh, in charge of the range, that that we've both been very keen on, is to get interaction in there. To say, again, you know, a good way of avoiding the same old stories is to to, to mix it up and put two people together, mm. and they will connect to each other and bounce off each other in a way that does provoke new stuff. You know, so cookbooks are a really good example because we really wanted to have Sarah and Janet together because mm. they bounce off each other so well, and we wanted Nicola and Colin together, and and mm. and I think that kind of interaction, whether it's in that or when Russell does behind the sofa, you know, it's all about what are these people actually like together. So mm. so there'll be a lot more of that in the future still. Yeah, that's great, and and then I I guess. So another example of that is where you've got Katie Manning and Stuart Bevan returning yeah. to Derry in, in your Keeping Up with the Joneses film, which is yeah. a, 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 I mean, I guess we always knew that they had a, a special kind of relationship together, but that that comes to the fore. But also, I suppose what what might be a surprise is just how much it seems to have meant to the people of the of the, of the town. You know that 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 event forty odd years ago still very very uppermost in some of their memories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember on on the DVD of Green Death, I made a making of, right. and I thought to myself, "Oh, I'd like to go on location." And then I looked at the locations and thought, "Oh, all the locations have been, you know, the the uh, the the kind of factory's been bulldozed, and yeah. the pit isn't there anymore, and everything else is, you know, the nut hutch is there still, but mm-hmm. most of the rest of it's just just kind of country roads." So I won't go on location. I'll just film this all in the studio. And I always felt a bit bad about that. And so when we came to do season 10 on Blu-ray, uh, I thought again about the Green Death and, and, and looked into it a bit more and thought, actually, maybe the fact that the pit has closed down, so there's an absence there. Maybe that's in, an interesting absence. Maybe that says mm. something about the time in which it was filmed and what's happened since. And I'm I'm half Welsh, you know, I've got a lot of... A lot of mining in in my family. My uh, great grandfather was a mining supervisor, and 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 so I feel very connected to the valleys. And I know mm-hmm. that I knew that Katie, who's half Welsh, and Stuart, who's full Welsh, you know that, that they both really had that connection. And, and we'd filmed with them before the two of them together, 
and you know they were boyfriend and girlfriend in the seventies. They have an, an amazing connection. They're very funny yeah. together. They're very easy together. Hmm. And uh, so I thought maybe we can do a bit of a road trip back to Derry. And uh, and actually, it turned out to be a lot more than I expected it to be. I think the the people of the town really saw Doctor Who as kind of the last hurrah for that hmm. version of their of their community. You know uh, that it was right at the end of the life of that pit, just yeah. before the closure. So it was a moment when everybody was united in pride and excitement about mm. what's happening at the pit. And I think there's a sadness that comes from that in the absence mm. of of that side of the community. And luckily, so a lot of those people uh, were still living in Derry, you know, or, or living in the nearby community, and they were really welcoming and generous with us. And one of my happiest moments was we, after the film finished, I took it back to the pub in Derry that we filmed in, and got everybody involved to come down, and we we laid on drinks and catering, and and we had a big premiere at the pub, and all right. watched it together, yeah. And it was lovely, you know. And it was, and again, you want to say thank you where you, where you can, but yeah, I think people were genuinely, you know, a bit bemused. I'm, I'm sure as to why, you know, a, a Doctor Who film crew had turned up, you know. But I think very mm. touched, you know, that we wanted to to hear their story. And uh, no, I'm really happy with the film. It was very hard to make because it was very windy and rainy <laughs> the whole time. Like, yes. I think one, of, I think probably the hardest one I've made in that sense. Mm. But I know that Katie and Stuart had a great time, and uh, I know the the people from from Derry did too. So it was it was a good one, definitely. And yes. we enjoyed filming with Bessie. Bessie uh, Dean Rose has a beautiful replica of Bessie, mm. uh, who which I was very demanding of and wanted it to do. To do lots of driving and retakes, and uh, and the engine didn't last very long. So I was very uh, appreciative to, to Dean for letting us put his pride and joy through that. But uh, I, I think I think it's just lovely to see Katie and Stuart driving around and in, in that sprite, sprightly yellow roadster, just yes. like the old days. Yeah, no, I, I think that that was a that was a lovely touch, and and I think the fact that they were able to go back to the nut touch that was also a, a, a nice touch too. Yeah. Yeah, well, the nut hatch hasn't ch- hasn't chased at all. You know, I think that's a lovely thing about farms and those kind of buildings that, yeah. that there's just not often not a need to particularly modernise them on the outside. Mm. Uh, so the nut hatch is is easily the most recognisable, I think, of those locations mm. that are still there. Definitely, not so much the pit, not much of the pit to see now, but no. the nut hatch definitely. No, no, I mean you could weep. I, I was brought up in in Yorkshire, and I remember in the early to mid seventies, they um, the coal board came to school, and they said Selby coal field, coal for four hundred yeah. years, and twenty years later they shut it down. So it was, um, you know, and I mean that's 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 the story right across Britain. I, I, it's not unique to that, but it, it is. No, but, it, but I, it's I mean, huge... I mean, nobody loved working down the mines. It was hard work, and it was and it was horrible. But the impact on those communities and the pride that it took away from people—that's that's the thing to weep about. I think. I think the real cruelty of the pits closing anywhere, and it's a very universal feeling. But the real cruelty is the lack of thought for what those people would do next. You know, if if Thatcher had said, "We're closing the pits." But I've got this big new idea for how we're going to save mm. these lives, essentially, and save these communities. Then I'd have a bit more sympathy because coal, coal had to go at some point. But I yeah. think it's it's the, it's it's a lack of mercy mm. and sympathy in that situation that that has allowed a lot of those towns, a lot of those towns in South Wales, to kind of wither on the vine, you know, after after the closure of a, of a pit. And I think that's a huge tragedy, unfortunately. Mm. Sure. So 
Moving on, there were, there were um, three different versions of the writers' room that, that have that have appeared. Oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, each of them with a slightly different flavour. So uh, the first one that I watched was the the season eighteen one, and the thing that that sticks with with me from that is is the pride of Christopher H. Bidmead for his season. You know, he's in in that, as I recall, very very enthusiastic. Yes. And also, I, I mean, I. I, I wrote on Twitter, having watched it, I, that I'd enjoyed it, and almost immediately he, he replied to me saying, "Oh, you know, he was glad that I'd, I'd watched it," and and, and uh, gave me a nice little message about that. So, oh, that's good. And also, I guess interesting that you've got Andrew Smith and Stephen Gallagher, sort of first-time writers in that season, and then uh, one or two older hands as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I, I I've been really happy working on the writers' room series because I mean I'm, I'm a writer myself, and I always think. I think sometimes in the making of documentaries, it's hard to give the writing the space it needs to be mm-hmm. examined because the writing happens at the very beginning and uh, a lot of the writers from Classic Who aren't, aren't with us anymore. Mm. And and sometimes you just want to get onto location in those documentaries. You want to say, okay, but let's get to the, the place where they filmed and start talking about the whole cast coming on board. And so I, I always felt like we were, like certainly I was shortchanging the writing a bit so the writers room is kind of my attempt to redress that I just thought you know just do something really simple where you just get the surviving writers from a season round a table get get a few pints down them and try and make it a very honest conversation and and also you know getting across that sense of the relationship between a writer and a script editor where yeah. sometimes that's a very nurturing positive relationship and sometimes it's a kind of fractious relationship mm. and sometimes it's a gang who love each other and sometimes it's a group of people who are meeting for the first time because maybe they were all completely independent before and the season 18 one you know is a really great place to start because so many of those writers are still are still with us and and i i I really i really enjoy uh chris bidmead you know i i i have a lot of time for chris and we've filmed together a couple of times and I know Chris can <laughs> Chris can polarize opinions sometimes, and I think he enjoys polarizing opinions. Yeah. Uh, but I think he's a very charismatic, charming man uh, who says what's in his head, and you, yeah, you yeah. may not agree with that, but but he says it, and and that's a that's a gift for a filmmaker, you know, to try and hmm. and 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 work with, and and having having we had uh, John Flanagan and Andrew Smith, as you say, and Stephen yes. Gallagher, and uh, and they're all they're all great characters, they're all lovely chaps, and they're very articulate so that one I thought has some lovely moments when kind of Stephen and Chris go a little bit toe-to-toe about uh, story <laughs> changes yeah uh, and I really I really like that neither of them kind of hold back on that and that was really fun and then writers room 23 is all about the missing the kind of lost yes. season yes I think that's an interesting uh, which approach. is much yeah it was much harder to do I mean it, we wouldn't have been able to do one really for no. season 23 itself because so many of them aren't aren't with us anymore but the missing season I thought would be interesting to look at and we, the only way we could do it really was by using the big finish adaptations and yes. uh, a lovely chap called Stuart Crouch did, did some beautiful artworks for us to kind of bring them to life mm. as much as we can we had an additional thing on that that Philip Martin who was writing Mission to Magnus with the Ice Warriors that he couldn't quite make it on the day so yes. we Skyped him in and I was thinking is this going to work I don't know if this is going to work and actually, it seemed it seemed really fun. Uh, although people yeah. seem obsessed with the food in these things, people say <laughs> we kind of we kind of we kind of just order what they have in the pub. And yeah. seemingly, the, the the running gag is that that seems to be these giant pork pies and clams <laughs> dinners. And, and 
a lot of the comments I see about the films are focused on these lunches, but it's not intentional. It's just this is the kind of food that these pubs serve, yeah. and the, the the guests that we had in were quite keen to to order mm. uh, to order large, and and then we did the one for season twenty six, yes. which might might just at an at an edge be my favourite simply because. It was a gang, Andrew Cartwell's yes. gang of him and Rona Monroe and Ben yeah. Ronovich and Ian Briggs and Mark Platt. Having them all there, having the whole writers team there, knowing that that we'd managed to get everybody and nobody had 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 passed on. You know, I think they were such a gang at the time in mm. 1989, and you really see that in their interplay. You know, you see that they care about each other. And I thought, I thought, what's lovely on those films is we used to have the writers talking about their own work. But to have them talk about each other's work, you know, to hear what Ben Aronovich thinks about survival mm. or what Ian Briggs thinks about Ghostlight, I think is really interesting. And, and you know, you get Ben Aronovich feeling awful about, about his Battlefield script and then everybody telling him not to worry because it's great. Mm. And I, I think it's just interesting to see those dynamics. So there aren't that many more. <laughs> there aren't that many more we can do. No. Uh, but there are like there are probably kind of maybe two or three more that I'd consider hmm. and obviously there would be if we ever get to do the new series then then there'd be more a lot more you know I'd yes. love to do that with like the season one the season one writers we could take them back to that Chula uh, the Indian restaurant that they all went to in season one yeah. and do one there but 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 I it's interesting I think it's a series that people seem to have responded really well to and it's quite simple and straightforward but I hmm. think people seem to like them so that's lovely Yes, well, I, th- I think uh, you know, as as you say, the writing of, of Doctor Who's always been you know really key to its success, and so, mm. and as you and, and equally, I suppose as you say, a lot, a lot of a lot has focused on the actors over the years. So, so taking the time to celebrate the writers and and to think about what was in their minds as they were uh, producing their scripts, I think is is uh, you know very interesting, and it, and it's good yeah. you've been able to cap- capture the, those people you know while while they're still with us. So, so, so yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, I only wish, you know, with any of these things, you think, wouldn't it be lovely to do this, like, kind of 20, 30 years ago and get kind of Mac Hulk and Terence Dix around the yeah. table with Don Houghton and, and, and all this. Stuff. And you <laughs> yeah. just think it's so sad that we that we physically can't do this. But, you know, we should definitely try and do what we can. Hmm. Yeah, and it, and interesting also, you know, your, your discussion about the the new series. I mean, it, it would be nice to mm. think that, that, that sometime soon enough time had passed that... that People can give that an honest appraisal. I mean, nobody's looking for 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 Russell T. Davis to start saying that he hates it because you know why would he? But I think you know maybe enough times passed that he doesn't have to feel that he's it's a complete cheerleading effort and he can be more dispassionate about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I'd lo- I'd love to think the new series stuff will happen one day. I, I think I think we'll have to. I imagine we'll have to get a good way through the the classic series for that to be. Even vaguely on the table because I think sure. I think we're still yeah, yeah. aware of how, of how much how far we have to go with the classic stuff. But yeah. the uh, but but no, I'd lo- I'd love to do like, like like I'm a huge fan of the new series as well, and and I think starting with a season one box set, a mm. series one I should say box set would be lovely. I and I think enough time has passed that people I think would be able to open up about it. Mm. That doesn't mean that you want a kind of awful kiss and tell and a kind of expose no. on. On, on the whole thing because it still has to come from a place of of love and and has to acknowledge that it was a massive hit you know mm. you know when the show came back it was huge and so i think mm. in many ways it's a very happy show but you can still be honest about these things were big challenges and these things 
resulted in a change to the way we've done things and we've shot mm-hmm. things with people like Phil Collinson and Phil is very I think I think very open and honest about mm. about things from those days I think a lot of those guys just haven't had the opportunity to to speak in recent years about about those things but I think Phil mm. gave an interview to Doctor Who magazine a couple of years ago where he talked about you know by the end of the first week of the season, of the first block of season one, hmm. they were eleven weeks behind schedule or something <laughs> oh, like that. Dear. You know, and uh, and that's such a an insight in, into what yes. they were going through. And you you can tell that in a compassionate way. I mean, I'd be hmm. if we did the new series, I'd be pitching, let's not do a making of per story that feels a bit much and maybe confidential. Yes. kind of sort of done that already. But let's do a like a two hour feature. Doc mm. per series or something. Let's do a, a kind of what was actually what was really going on up mm. above everything else, you know, behind behind the scenes on a on a show. That that would be my approach. And then coming off from that into the quirkier threads that we've got already, you know, whether that's the writers' yes. room stuff or or the kind of looking for and so on. You know, I, I think mm. we'd wa- I'd certainly want to pitch things that were consistent with the rest of the Blu-ray range so far. Mm. So hopefully one day, you never know. Sure. In which case, this could take a while to, to, to get through the whole to get through the whole lot. It could take a while. Well, you know, I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm very hopeful that I've got another thirty years ahead of me yet. So, um, you know, I'm, well, I'm very ha- I'm very happy that it takes you as long as it takes. Uh, um, you, know, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think we'll all be very keen to consume it when when the time's right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll we'll certainly keep on trucking on. You know, there's a lot to get through just yet. Yeah. So, so I guess what I'm really keen to talk to you about before we come to to uh, finish is um, is Showman. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I read uh, Richard Marson's biography of JNT when it came out, and I thought I'd I'd read the definitive account of his life. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, 400 odd pages. I mean, it, 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 there was a lot in there, and and, and it's it's a, it's a fantastic book. But I mean, I was interested to 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 watch your documentary, and and you know, you come up with quite a few new angles on on JNT that weren't in the book. Yeah, and possibly also the the balance is such such that we come away with a, with a, a slightly more uh, sympathetic view of John. I mean, I mean, you know, certainly you've you've not shied away from the fact that he had some flaws in it, uh, and and some you know some things didn't go too well. But on the other hand, it, it did feel. A real celebration, and and certainly I felt quite uh, um, emotional at the end of it, thinking of, of yeah. you know, of, of of the highs and the lows of his life, all sort of all in one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I think I think to an extent there's a there's a certain redressing of the balance that we wanted to do with with Showman. Uh, that I think in Doctor Who documentaries over the years, there's been a tendency. Partly because John's not been around to defend himself, you know that there's mm. been a, a sense that if something went wrong on the show, it was John's fault. And mm. occasionally we'd get an opportunity to sing his praises, and I think we did a great show in the Galaxy making of where you could legitimately say John saved the day. And unless John had used his knowledge of the BBC, they wouldn't have been able to continue filming mm. uh, and get it made, you know. But I thought on Showman, I wanted to do something that was more balanced towards John, and that gave a sense of, you know, it wasn't like they gave the top job on Doctor Who to an idiot, you know. Mm. He, he, must have, he must have known what he was doing to get that job and to hold it down and and to make some of my favourite Doctor Who. So so who who was he? And I think I've, I've known Richard Marson for about 10 years now. We're good friends and, and mm. I'd really enjoyed his, his, his book. You know, it's a very tough read as the book and obviously there was a lot of uh, of kind of unfortunate tabloid interest at, at the time that I know was, yeah. was, was hard for Richard as, as well. 
but it's a fascinating book and I can't underestimate the the research that Richard put into that book of tracking yeah. down people from John's childhood and really pinpointing I think that potential that John had as a young man and the thing that really connected to me about the story was the idea of John's life as a really pure awful kind of mythic Greek rise and fall you know mm. that his life is almost like a perfect pyramid shape yeah. that for me kind of leads him directly up to the five doctors and Longleat and then yeah. directly down from, from that and it, and it was so unusual I think to see a life that had such a direct shape to it that such mm. a direct tragedy to it so I, that was the thing that I thought if we can compassionately tell a story of a of this rise and fall in a way that is responsible and and sympathetic but realistic at the same time you know then that's what that's what we want to do you know so we I went to Richard and I said you know we we don't want to it's not that we're adapting the book but we'd like to build on the foundations of the book and tell our own story and so Richard came on board very happily I think as consultant and and not and mm. obviously was a very key interviewee for us yeah and it, and and I think I think in a good way it's always going to end up as a different beast to the book you know but I but you can't underestimate that that legacy that the book has that we could build on you know and I think mm. then it was thinking well what can I do to make this visual in a way that the book can't you know so a lot of the creative on that film was channeled into that sense of you know that I took cameras to every place in John's life that I yes. could go to you know yes. and we kind of drift through John's footsteps all the way through his life you know from literally the house that he grew mm. up in through his school through the BBC and through all of the houses that he lived at all the places that that he, that he knew and I and I think by the end of the film I think one of my favorite moments that our editor Richard Alderson put together is that moment towards the end when John's life has just ended in in our narrative and you then revisit in a, in a short montage kind of all of those locations mm. you kind of walk back through and you think well you know the man is gone but the places remain and they're still in our world and and you know I found it very moving to to do yes. in the last the last twenty minutes of that film is probably the stuff I'm most proud of, I think, and it's it was uh, and it's been lovely actually to see the reaction to that. You know that, mm. that we were able to screen it at the BFI, which felt yeah. really special and and lovely to be able to invite the contributors to it, the interviewees along, to be a part of that. And it's mm. been really good to see it go out in, into the world. And I, I did have, I had I had somebody when it was announced, somebody tweeted me and said, "Are you going to address all of the accusations about John?" And I just thought, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I think people need to be realistic about what you can what you can talk about on yeah. a box set that's going to be viewed by different members of the family. Quite. And I think I think the film is mature and responsible about acknowledging that side of John's life, and we kind of allude to it and and touch on that core idea that John basically. John's greatest flaw, I think, was blurring the lines and, and kind of not mm. knowing when to, to put a separation between the professional and the personal. And the fact that he, he got too close to fans, they got too close to him, you know, was was, was part of that tragedy of, of his life and I think part of the way mm. that the BBC perceived him as not being proper somehow, you know, not being a proper producer. I think that's all connected. So we certainly, we tried to be, to, to be as all-encompassing as we, mm. as we possibly could in that film and I think it's the reason I think that film is the reason that the box set is a 12 I think because mm. because it's quite it's quite a grown up doc I, I hope for that kind of sure. for that kind of situation for that kind of box set yeah yeah so I mean I, I, in my own 
life experience and career. I mean, you know, a million miles away from what John Nathan Turner did. But but I I had a, a scenario where I ended up in in a role in the organisation I work for where, you know, like John, it, it was it, you know I, I kind of knew the the role and how to do it, and it was convenient for everybody. You know that that I I keep doing that thing because no one else kind of knew what to do. Yeah. But equally, yeah. it's you know year after year doing that same thing, you it, it becomes very difficult. And at some point, you get a um, a boss who's less sympathetic and thinks, "Who's this old geezer who's been doing this for however long? You know, we do we really need this? Yeah. Do we really want that?" And and you know, in my career, I was fortunate that you know someone else in the organisation saw my potential and moved me into something else. I got a helping hand, and and John didn't get that. And I think that was you know the, what struck me was that. There were many people who could have offered John a helping hand, but but nobody, or or, or you know, if they did, he didn't take it. Yeah, I think he was, he was a victim of certainly his own his own early success, you know, and, and testament to how we can all have too much of a good thing, you know, how yeah. you know if John had, John, I think probably had a few opportunities where he may have stayed with the, the less risky option, you know, mm. I, th- I think I think we talk about this in the film that if he'd gone freelance earlier. You know, then things could have ended up very different, and I think he's a he's a really good parable for how we should all take a chance every now and again. You know, and, and you can stay too long in mm. the same role. You know, and I think John definitely found that yep. to his detriment after after that. So it, it was very sad, and I, I think uh, I think that was mm. the thing that I was really interested in, really just to, to really be able to tell tell that story and, and let the viewer decide what they thought of John off mm. the back of that. Okay, so so look, we're, we're, we're definitely yeah. coming towards the end of the time. I mean, any, anything else that you want to promote and and to look forward to that's that's um, that's coming up in terms of of your work on the Blu-rays? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've got new stuff coming up. I mean, I think season fourteen is a really nice one. is a really good set, and we've done two films for that. Uh, one of them is a, a Toby where we've done uh, Who's Doctor Who Revisited. So we kind of looked at the, the old Melvin Bragg front-fronted Who's yep. Doctor Who documentary and thought, well, this is really interesting. This is made at the same time as season 14, goes behind the scenes of Talons when it was being recorded. And this is the first, basically, the first documentary ever made about Doctor Who. So everything that we do is kind of, is a great-great-grandchild of Who's Doctor Who. And it has all this wonderful... 70s filmed material of families and kids and and random grown-ups who should probably know better being interviewed uh, about their love of of Doctor Who so it it has that kind of feel of like an early 7-Up episode and we thought well wouldn't it be lovely to do a 7-Up and to see Mm. what's become of these people and and I really felt like it was quite untouched like I don't think Doctor Who magazine or any of the uh, the other Doctor Who any other parts of the community I don't think they've really looked at it properly so it became a real job uh, for me and Richard Bignall primarily to track down those people often you know we we didn't know what their surnames were because the paperwork isn't complete <laughs> for who's Doctor Who so, so some of them are very easy so, so Casper Hewitt who's the young the, the, the wonderful young gentleman uh, in a pinstripe suit aged 11 mm-hmm. I think uh, <laughs> was very easy to track down because he's the only Casper Hewitt I'm aware of in the country and he's now a doctor at Newcastle Uni and he's got his own webpage and you think, well, right. there we go. I can yeah. get get Casper very easily. Uh, but then some of the other ones uh, were very difficult and basically involved me stalking people. And uh, I think on one occasion I'd found somebody on Facebook 
who I really wanted to get involved. And of course, on Facebook, when you message somebody, it doesn't. If you're not friend already, it doesn't pop up as a kind of big message. It's kind of a little. Uh, it will pop up on your screen in a very small way, so you yeah. can miss that a non-friend has messaged you. And I think that's what happened with this chap. And so, in my most stalkerish moment, I saw that he had uh, like a hundred friends on Facebook, and I <laughs> and I messaged about fifty of them <laughs> to, to, to say, "This is going to sound really weird, but I'm trying to get in touch with your friend. If could you just give him a nudge to look at his messages?" And that's probably a way that's not approved officially by the BBC, but it was the only option that we had left. And luckily, he saw this. He was he, a friend told him to look at his messages. And he really wanted to do it, and he had an amazing time, and nobody was harmed in the stalking of this particular individual. But, it, <laughs> but, but, but we did definitely get, you know, it was some deep level geeky stalking to put it together, and I mm. and I really love it. And to- Toby says it's his favourite one of the ones that we've done, which I know sounds like kind of like kind of promo stuff, but it but I think it's a really it's a really thoughtful grown up film that I think feels a bit more a bit more BBC Four than kind of some of the ones that we've done. Mm. So I think that'll be really interesting with loads of new stuff. I think people will learn a lot that they don't know already on who's Doctor mm. Who revisited. And then the other, the bigger, the bigger one is uh, we've done a, a documentary tribute to Elizabeth Sladen, which mm-hmm. is oh, it's kind of I think it's seventy-seven minutes long, and it's very much right. you know we've we made the JNT one, and then I think it was the next one we did straight afterwards. So it's you know I think people will see a few visual connections between the two, but we've tried mm-hmm. to evolve the kind of format as, as well and that was really just I mean I think Liz is such a universally loved figure yes that you wanted to make something that really tackled that and figured out you know what was going on that has made her so loved and and also be honest about Liz as a character I think I think Liz would have said herself that she was that she could worry and she could feel anxious about things and and maybe she never realized quite how good she was or how much she was loved and her mm. career has this beautiful you know frustrating but beautiful arc to it where she's she's at uh, the toast of saturday nights and every every kid in 1976 or whatever knows who she is yeah and then and then i think you know suffered from typecasting in the 80s and and in a way that i think feels quite unfair to the talent that she had uh, mm. but then a lot of a lot of those stories end there and with Liz, it doesn't. You get mm. this wonderful renaissance and this wonderful kind of not just a moment in the sun, but a whole extra decade really of of yeah. of, of love and opportunity and and success, and then a, a, a death that came far too young. So I think I think mm. I think the film really tries to tell that story in the purest way that we can. And we were very fortunate because I think you mentioned Liz's name, and that affection is evident by the people who mm. want to be interviewed. So you know you can get. Tom Baker, you can get Louise Jameson, you can get David Tennant. Uh, you know, we went to Sir Alan Akebourne, who'd worked with Liz, who'd kind of written for Liz on stage in Scarborough in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And we're able to go all the way up to, like, Tommy Knight from the Sarah Jane Adventures yes. and Phil Collinson to talk about Doctor Who. So it's a doc that's very much not limited by a classic Doctor Who. It's saying, let's do Liz's whole life. Let's start in Liverpool. Let's do theatre. Let's do Doctor Who, you know, and let's do everything else in between and and I think having again the support of her family and Sadie Sadie her daughter Sadie Miller has been very instrumental in it and gives a really beautiful interview in it and I, I, I'd i be fascinated to see how, how it goes down because I, I hope it's a real love letter uh, mm. to Liz from her fans but with enough of a 
enough of a maturity to be to be kind of balanced at the same time. Hmm. And I think I can't wait can't wait to see what what people think. I hope they like it. If they don't like it, then that's that's bad and depressing. But <laughs> but hopefully they like it. I think Tom is heartbreaking in it. You know, Tom. I think we I think came to us in a very good in a very good mood to talk about Liz and hmm. is incredibly. I think really there's a moment in the film that I won't spoil, but a moment when he it, you can see the emotions really get to him. Hmm talking about Liz and it's heartbreaking because and you realise quite the connection we have as fans to these people and, and to the parts yeah. they played and, and it's uh, yeah so I, I can't wait for people to see it yeah. hopefully You'll, soon hopefully coronavirus won't stop as far as I'm aware yeah. it's coming out on time but uh, who knows at the moment who knows sure yes I mean so that's the team that I grew up with really um, Tom and Liz yeah um, so yeah I'll be very interested to see that and and yeah I've 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 got it on order so as soon as it does come through I'm I'll be uh, ripping <laughs> off the plastic to watch that well I think I think from the BBC's point of view it it will come out on time it's just whether it can be distributed I guess, yeah. I guess is the thing Ho- hopefully everything will be fine but you don't want to guarantee anything yes. with yeah, the, the current climate do you yeah, we're supposed to be wiping our post down, aren't we, now when it comes through the letterbox or something? Oh, are we? Oh, blimey, yeah. I've not started doing that. <laughs> oh, so, so there's those two, and then and then we're obviously, you know, we're working on stuff for a whole host of other releases. Yeah. Some of which have been announced, some of them haven't been announced. We they they've announced that that the Fury from the Deep animation uh, that Gary Russell's team is working on is due out at some point. I don't think mm-hmm. they've said the date yet. Uh, and we've done a we did a big making of for Fury, which has always been a story I've you know loads of atmosphere in that story, mm. really interesting. Yes. Locations, and we went and we took some of the cast and crew back to to the beach near Margate that they filmed in, mm. and then we, we we went out on a boat. It's the first filming we did on a boat where we uh, we took them out to the Red Sand Sea Fort. Yes. Which is these these five towers out in the Thames Estuary that were kind of gun placements. Uh, kind of battery placements in the Second World War, and then and then pirate radio stations in the sixties, and mm. and it became a Doctor Who location taken over by the Weed at that point, and that was probably the most ambitious that we've gone in terms of uh, production because that was mm-hmm. a very complicated place to access, and obviously the weather starts to play a big part. But we were flying drones around those structures and, and putting people back on top of them, uh, <laughs> which is all a bit scary. Uh, mm. But we survived, so so that one will be out. That's called uh, uh, the Cruel Sea. I think the trailer was shown for that at a few conventions, but that mm. one will be out at some point this year. So that'd be fun. Bro, haven't finished it yet. Need to finish the edit on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, Chris. Well, well I mean, thanks so much for 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 talking to me to, for for so long. It, it, it's it's been fantastic to talk to you and fascinating to hear some of those stories and, and, and to understand the process of uh, putting those things together. So so thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you.